at least somewhat, our view of the meaning of Pentecost in the type that it projects. Let's start out by reading this, beginning up in verse 10 of Leviticus 23. Already, we've already gone through uh, Passover and the Days of Unleavened Bread at this point. So we're at Pentecost today. Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you be come into the land which I, have give, which I give to you, and shall reap the harvest thereof, then you shall bring a sheaf of the firstfruits of your harvest unto the priest. And he shall wave the sheaf before the Eternal to be accepted for you. On the morrow after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. Well, wait a minute, we're still in, uh, we're still actually in unleavened bread here, because, but this fits, uh, because Christ is the first of the first fruits, as we find in the New Testament, and this sheep was waved, and then we counted from that wave sheep day, 50 days until today. So let's go on down to verse 15, where it actually starts to talk about Pentecost. And you shall count to you from the morrow after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheep of the wave offering, seven Sabbaths shall be complete. It was waved on a Sabbath, and you went through seven more Sabbaths, 49 days. Even to the morrow after the seventh Sabbath shall you number 50 days. So seven times seven is 49, and one is 50. That's why it's on Sunday, not Monday. Not 51 days, 50 days. Now, we have tied in the Jubilee in the past, and I believe that that certainly is connected here, because the God's whole system of land management and financial management is based on 50 years, broken down into seven land Sabbaths times seven, or 49 years, and then a year of Jubilee. We in the church have not understood when the Jubilee is, and I have said before, and it's been fairly common in the church, I think, to say that we don't know when the Jubilee is, and God has obscured it so that we wouldn't know when the 60 or the 6,000 years would be up, and therefore could not use that as a prediction of when Christ would return. So the way we have done it is by principle only. And we marked a person's third and sixth years and the seventh year by the time of their either knowledge of the truth or their baptism. And whichever it was closest to, the Passover or the Feast of Tabernacles. I generally said Feast of Tabernacles because that is the close of the agricultural year and is the logical time to begin starting over uh, from that standpoint. That's when your harvest comes in and then you go to the feast and so on. Of course, you had a spring harvest and a fall harvest as well. I think we are poised now. We have come into the land that God has given us. God gave us some land here at least. And now we are a body on a piece of land. So I think we should certainly consider that we could keep the land Sabbath together rather than each of us doing it based on his baptism, let's say. We could do it from the time that we began to use this land and utilize it and keep the land Sabbath according to Scripture. I'm not going to go into the details of that today for sake of time. 
But we could make that step forward where we're doing something unitedly as opposed to individually. That would make our third five years the same, the third in the six years out of a seven-year cycle. With the land rest on the seventh, and then, of course, after seven of those comes the Jubilee. Now, we may be able to nail down pretty close when the Jubilee year is. I think that that is possible. I'm not going to go into it today. We might be a year or two off, but I think we can get pretty close based on what I have uh, read in the Bible, thought through, and seen in a couple, three papers that people have sent me over the last two or three or four years. So I think that we certainly should consider restoring the land Sabbath as close to what it originally was as we possibly can. Uh, the Jubilee itself pictured all land going back to the original owners or original families so that if you had a generation of poor management and your land was taken from you by debtors or whatever, it would go back to the family and the children then would have a fresh start with the original land. And it was divided up as they went into the land of promise. So it projects forward to the time when Israel receives her land back, beginning of the millennium. And perhaps it has even, more, even meaning for us today when God returns blessing to his remnant. We've read many scriptures in the Minor Prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and other places about that occurrence, which is just ahead of us. So, Jubilee, I think, is tied in by its very count of seven times seven weeks and the 50th, just like the land Sabbath, a day is as a year and so on, uh, 49 years, and then that freedom, that new start, that revival, that re-energize, I still can't talk. The re-energizing, I'm trying to say, of families through the return of their land. So each has a fresh start all over again. So the Jubilee seems to me inextricably bound into Passover. Passover, into Pentecost. So you number 50 days, and you shall offer a new meal offering to the Eternal. You shall bring out of your habitations two wave loaves, of two tenths deals. They shall be of fine flour. They shall be baked with leaven. They are the first fruits to the eternal. Somehow, we have, or did, come to the point we thought that leaven was always a bad thing. But it's not. Leavening is only bad during the days of unleavened bread. Now, you yourself know that the bread you ate prior to the days of unleavened bread and the bread that you ate afterward tasted better and was far more palatable than that you ate during those days. Leavening represents sin only during that time or, as in the case of the Pharisees, when something is going through us or through the church that is sinful, then it could represent something bad. In other words, he said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, or the doctrine of the Pharisees. 
those doctrines going through Israel were a bad thing. So anything that is bad at any time that is pervasive and goes through something could be bad. But if something good is going through, that could also represent levity. Now, I immediately thought of the verses that uh, Gordon used in the sermonette, and since that sermonette will not be on tape and preserved, I'd like to go back to at least one of those. Uh, that was Matthew 21, was it not? Thirteen, I'm sorry. Verse 33 it was. Or ver- Yeah. Now this is a very short parable. Another parable spoke he to them. The kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till the whole was leavened. The kingdom of God is likened to leaven. Now is there anything bad about the kingdom of God? No. What is the kingdom of God going to do? It is going to start small, and it is going to pervade the entire earth. It's going to cover the earth. It will encompass everything. So God is saying that the kingdom of God is like leaven, and that that goodness will go everywhere, just as in the case of the analogy of unleavened, you didn't want something bad introduced, because it would go through everything. So the uh, emphasis during the Days of Unleavened Bread is to put evil out, and leavening is used as a bad thing there because it is pervasive. But if leaven is always, or is, it always represents sin, then we should never eat it, should we? Because we should never sin. But it doesn't represent sin all the time. Sometimes it represents righteousness. How did we overlook that over the years? Well, I don't know. How did we overlook a lot of things over the years? So I, before I came over here, scratched that out of my margin and uh, realized that it was wrong. Now, let's go back to Leviticus 23 and verse 17. It said, These two loaves shall be baked with leaven. They are the first fruits to the eternal. Now, we know from Revelation 14 that the 144,000 are the first fruits. They are the only ones in the first resurrection. They are the bride of Jesus Christ, as is shown clearly in Revelation 21, 19 through 21. Is Christ going to have a bride of imperfections? No. She will be made perfect. She will be made prepared and ready. Now, as long as we're human, I'm sure we will still have some imperfections, but this corruptible must put on incorruption, and we shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. So whatever imperfections remain are going to be erased in the resurrection so that he will have a bride commensurate to his own character, capacities, and abilities. So these two loaves represent the first fruits. Now, why two loaves? Why not one? You've got one bride. He's not a polygamist. I have two brides. 
Well, in one sense, you might say you've got to have 144,000 individuals there. That's a lot of wives. But the type is not that. The type is one wife composed of 144,000 members. I think there are two possibilities in why there are two loaves here. One might be it represents those who became first fruits uh, through the Old Testament, because there are some. Uh, you can go to the book of Hebrews, or go to Hebrews 11, and it shows many who will be in that first resurrection, and that they will not be in the resurrection until we are there with them, as it says at the end of the chapter. And then that the second loaf would represent those from the New Testament who are first fruits. However, I think that is the weaker of two possibilities that I see at this point. And I think that this one might become clearer as we go on today. I think that it is very likely that those two waves, loaves, represent those who are dead in Christ and those who are yet alive in Christ. Those who are dead have their reward waiting. They cannot accomplish anything more because they are dead and they know nothing, right? Laying in their graves, can't do a thing until they're resurrected. So whatever work they did toward preparing the bride of Christ, toward the work of God through the centuries, is done. They're in this pile safe. Then you have those of us who are alive and remain, and we still have work to do. So it might be a two-part division based on those who still have something to do and those who have done all they can for the moment. I want to go back to Hebrews 11 just for a moment and read what Paul said about that, because it... This is part of my thinking. Hebrews 11 and verse 39. Speaking of these who were faithful and who did great works on this earth, who did a lot toward the kingdom of God and have an assured place in the kingdom of God. These all, having obtained a good report through faith, the leavening of God went through them, the kingdom of God was represented in them, and they have qualified for the kingdom of God already. So this is a leavening, a very small number of people. And you start with very small amounts of leavening in a loaf of bread, and it spreads throughout that bread. Now, God started something with righteous Abel, with Abraham, with some people of the Old Testament who were faithful to him, that is now spread to a greater number and later on is going to spread throughout the entire world. So these did have a good report. Through faith, received not the promise. God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. That is, should not be resurrected in the first resurrection, or go to heaven ahead of us, or come to rule on the earth ahead of us, as the case is. So God was looking out for us by having those people wait in their graves all this time. They're having to wait because of you and me. Now, these people worked great works, didn't they? It says up here in this chapter that they 
through faith, subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the alien, women even received their dead raised to life again, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Others had trials of mockings, scourgings, bonds, imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawed in half, were tempted, were slain with a sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. Incredible deeds through trusting God. What an example for those of us upon whom the ends of the world have come. Now, when Paul, and I think it was Paul who wrote Hebrews, wrote this, he still was in the mode of thinking that the kingdom of God would return while he was on the earth. And he said, these all died, and we, speaking of he and the Hebrews of his day, have not obtained the promises yet, as they haven't, but he said a better thing for us. Little did he know at that time that he also would be killed. He also, during his life, was imprisoned and stoned and went through some of the same things that he's writing about here. And then had to die an ignominious death, as did the other apostles, say John, who apparently was boiled in oil without it hurting him. So Paul and those apostles and those early Christians also died, some of them being tortured and going through some of the same things that David and Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego went through, Isaiah and others. Had to go through the same things. Now we are told in Matthew 24 that they will kill us thinking they do God a service. And Matthew 24 is in the context of the temple being torn down for the last time and fleeing to a place of safety, the gospel being preached by the two witnesses, and the end of the age. So what all those people in the Old Testament went through, what Paul in the first era of the New Testament church went through, is going to be repeated here at the end. So we know the whole story, don't we? We know that people in this day and age will suffer these same things. But we are alive and Paul is not. The work has to be finished and it hasn't been. Whatever the work is of the first fruits. Now there are various works that have to be done. And that is critical that we understand. Most of the church today does not understand that. They think there's only one thing to be done, and that's print booklets and, and uh, magazines and get on television and preach the gospel that way. That's all they think has to be done. They are missing history. Noah had a different job. Uh, Abraham had a different job. David had a different job. Herbert Armstrong had a different job. He had a job of calling many people, and he accomplished that quite successfully, I believe. 
He did not have the job of Matthew 24:14 to preach the gospel around the world as a witness, and then the end would come. He finished doing his job, and the end hasn't come. We're still here, and there is still a job that has to be done. So the work changes. Now let me ask you a question, because this has to do with our traditional explanation of Pentecost. We sometimes have stressed that it could have something to do with the Jubilee. We have certainly said that it was the Feast of the First Fruits, and we preached Acts 2 about how God sent the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, and we've looked, in a sense, backward to Acts 2, 2,000 years ago, more or less. But what about today? Are we celebrating a holy day today whose fulfillment has already occurred, and so it is only a historical matter for us, or is it yet a prophetic matter? It's already fulfilled. Holy Spirit's already come. It's the end of it. We're just looking back. Now, Pentecost and Feast of Trumpets are solely for the first fruits. Passover, Christ's sacrifice, has to do with 7,000 years, and that wave sheet cycles through all seven of those days of unleavened bread to show that his sacrifice is there for all 7,000 years of man's experience on this earth. So even though it is a historical thing, his sacrifice was overriding and therefore carries from Adam and Eve all the way through the millennium and great white throne judgment. But you move forward to Pentecost, and it is only about the first fruits. That's all. This day, in particular, has nothing to do with other resurrections. It has nothing to do with other people. It has only to do with those in Hebrews 11 and those from the early New Testament period on up to us who have been a part of the true ecclesia, or ecclesia it should be, of God. Those called out to be separate, to be a purchased people, purchased by the blood of Christ has only to do with us. Feast of Trumpets is the same way. It has to do with the resurrection of the first fruits. So there are two days that are for you and me and these people who have died in the past. That's all. Now, in a way, by extension, it has to do with others because as the first fruits, we're to be the bride of Christ and therefore the mother of many people in the millennium and great white throne judgment. So it is only through us, by extension, that it has anything to do with anyone else. But as far as the specific meaning of the days, just the first fruits. Pentecost and trumpets are that way. Now, atonement is almost that way, because I think we now understand that atonement separates out the bride of Christ and represents the wedding of the Lamb, when the bride and the groom become at one, completely, totally one. 
However, it also pictures the banishment and the tying up of Satan for a thousand years, which is of great benefit to those living during the millennium. So in a sense, atonement is not just for us, the meaning is greatly for us, but it also has repercussions for the rest of the world in terms of Satan being bound for a thousand years. So, to put it uh, clearly, Pentecost and trumpets have to do with us. Now, when are the first fruits resurrected? The church as a whole is always taught that it would be at the Feast of Trumpets, or that time pictured by the Feast of Trumpets, whether it's on the day or not. There is at least one organization I know of that preaches that, as I understand it, now I heard a tape and it's been some years back, so I'm not sure, I don't make this a direct quote and I'm not sure exactly what they teach, but as I understand it, an organization teaches that the first fruits will be resurrected on Pentecost. I don't know or remember all of the uh, reasons why that was said, but I do not believe it to be true. Uh, let's go to... Where did I write those scriptures down here? Well, 1 Corinthians 15 is where I want to go first. 1 Corinthians 15... And here I want verse 23. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ at his coming. So, the firstfruits are resurrected at Christ's coming. Notice verse 52. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. So, it is at the last trump. Verse 23 said it's at Christ's coming. So, obviously, Christ is coming at the last trump. You go to the book of Revelation, and you find that there are seven trumpets. And on the seventh trump, this occurs. Uh, before I go there, let's go to First Thessalonians 4. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. We will never leave him. We will always be with him from that moment on. Wherever he goes, we will go. I believe that he will go back to his father's throne and be there for a year, and the honeymoon, the marriage and honeymoon will occur there. We're not to go to war or to work for a year after a marriage. And he will return at the end of that year, the day of the Lord, to conquer the world. The seven last plagues will be going on during that time. Now let's go back to Revelation 10. Revelation 10, 
you have the angel sounding. Verse 7, But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished, as he has declared to his servants the prophets. So, we've already seen at the last trump, and here the trumps are laid out, and at the time of the seventh trump is the time the mystery of God is finished. What is the mystery of God? The mystery of the ages? It is that we will be God. In simple, straightforward terms. will be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump, the seventh trump. You can go through and read all of the things that happen with the first six trumpets. They aren't very pretty, but the thing that happens with the seventh is a beautiful thing. The mystery of God will be finished and we'll rise. Two witnesses will be raised at that time, uh, Revelation 11, toward the end of it. So, it should be quite clear that the first fruits are raised at the last trump, at the return of Christ, not before. Well, now, if the Feast of Trumpets represents the first fruits being resurrected, and Pentecost also is the feast of the first fruits in so many words, what does that mean? What's the purpose? Why not just have a Feast of Trumpets and say that's the time of the resurrection of the first fruits? And it could be the feast of the first fruits and the raising of the first fruits. In other words, what meaning can we put on Pentecost coming between Passover and unleavened bread and feast of trumpets? Is it just the coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts two? Is that all there is to it? Or is there more? Let's go again back to Leviticus 23. There's some things I want to pick up here and then project forward. And I think by the time we're done, we're going to see more clearly what our job is and what God is going to do and what, therefore, Pentecost pictures in a much clearer understanding than we have ever had before. Much deeper understanding, perhaps. All right, we were in verse 17. You shall bring out of your habitations two way blows of two tenths deals. They shall be of fine flour, ground fine. You don't want something rough and coarse here. To use a different analogy or to mix the metaphors, uh, the stones that build the temple have to be polished well. They can't be rough. All the rough edges need to be knocked off. They need to be polished highly. And if you use the analogy of flour, it needs to be beat fine because coarse flour makes rough bread, and finer flour you can make finer pastries and breads from. They shall be baked with leaven. They are the first fruits to the eternal. Baked with leaven, and I think that Christ was playing on this when he made that statement in Matthew 13:33 and in Luke, Luke, or that parable, that the kingdom of heaven is as leaven. Because we, properly leavened, are going to spread our influence around the world, being the mother, the kings and the priests, the teachers in the world tomorrow, around the world. That is what our job is to be. And that is the analogy in that parable that was used. And here it is repeated for us. We're the first fruits, and we need to 
have an influence around the world. Now, in the meantime, before that happens, are we to have any influence? That's a question. Let's go on. And you shall offer with the bread seven lambs without blemish of the first year. Now, I want us to pause for a moment here and notice something. In this chapter of Leviticus 23, we have somewhat of a summary of the annual holy days and the feasts of God. You'll notice that in the Passover and Days of Unleavened Bread dissertation, it only mentions one sacrifice, or one sheep being waved, representing Christ for us. And it doesn't mention other sacrifices. You go on to the Feast of Trumpets, and it doesn't mention other sacrifices. Go on down to Atonement. It doesn't go into all the different sacrifices that might be offered on that day nor does it on the Feast of Tabernacles or the eighth day. And yet it gives here, in detail, the different sacrifices that were to be given on Pentecost. Why would he do that? Why would he leave them all out with all the others, but put them in for Pentecost? It, it seems out of context or strange, in a sense, doesn't it? Now, if you go to Numbers 28... It lists all the holy days, and it lists all the sacrifices in detail that were to be given on each one of those days. I won't go back there and read all that. You can go there if you want. But it mentions each holy day, and then it talks about two bullocks and two lambs and seven oxen, you know, on and on it goes, turtle doves and whatnot. But it doesn't do it here except for Pentecost. Hmm. Let's see what it says here. You shall offer with the bread seven lambs without blemish of the first year, one young bullock and two rams. They shall be for a burnt offering to the eternal with their meal offering and their drink offerings, even an offering made by fire of sweet savor to the eternal. So this was not, at this point then, what's being described a sin offering or trespass offering. It was a sweet savor offering. So the first fruits then must be a sweet savor to God. Okay? I'm going to speculate a little bit here. Verse 18. I don't know that I have it all worked out or worked out right, but I'll speculate a little bit. So understand, this is speculation. This is not doctrine uh, established. This is some ideas. Perhaps we can add to them later on, uh, maybe we'll understand them better later on, and maybe I'm all wet, but I want to interject some thoughts here. Now, if we are the ones who are alive and remain as the first fruits, the ones that God is using then to finish His work, you see, different parts of God's work have been done down through the ages by some who would be, ultimately, first fruits, Right? So, those who live to the end have to finish whatever work God has to be done during this age. It falls to them. Everyone else is dead. Those who are called at the last, that generation must finish the work. Now, there should be a glimmer of understanding beginning to filter in our minds then that the first fruits will be resurrected to last trump at the very end of the work. Two witnesses will have finished their work three and a half days, 
be killed and then resurrected with the general resurrection and those who are alive and remain. So the work of God has to be completed right there at the end by some of us who are alive today. So, if the Feast of Trumpets pictures that, what does the Feast of Pentecost then begin to picture? The work. Whatever must be finished by the first fruits. Because their work will be finished at the Feast of Trumpets. So whatever they must do in the meantime has to be pictured by Pentecost because they are alive and able to do something. Now we'll explore that thought more as we go on and I think you can see it clearly. You shall offer with the bread seven lambs without blemish of the first year. How many churches in the end time book of Revelation are mentioned in Revelation 2 and 3? Seven. How many trees will God plant in the wilderness? Isaiah 41, I believe it is. Seven. How many candlesticks do the two witnesses give oil to? Zechariah 4. Seven. I wrote a series of articles some years back, which I think are on the website, showing that all seven churches exist at the end time. Revelation is an end time book, and there is much, much internal evidence to show that all seven attitudes are extant today. I believe that it is probably a dual fulfillment, that yes, there was an Ephesian era, the very beginning, and those eras came on through. Certainly, Laodicea is the predominant attitude alive today in the greater church of God. And it being the last, if you were to put them nose to tail through the thousands of years. But there is also evidence to show that there is another fulfillment of that, and that is that all seven are existing right at the end, and Revelation is an end-time book, and that will be the most pronounced uh, fulfillment. Take, for instance, just one example, Thyatira. It says that all the churches will see what happens to, to Thyatira. Well, if Ephesia and Pergamos and Smyrna are way in the past, and those people are already dead, they don't see anything happening to Thyatira. And if it happened in the Middle Ages, those of Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea wouldn't see what happened to Thyatira. But all the churches see it. So that means they must all be living at the same time in order to observe what happens to Thyatira. Just one small example. There are many, many, many others. And those seven attitudes permeate the church today and the problems and the good points of all. Isaiah 4, another example. How many women take hold of one man at the end? Seven. The context of Isaiah 4 is the birth of the remnant, the beginning of the building of the new temple, the last temple, the latter temple, at the end of the age, just before the return of Christ. So those sevens come up pretty regularly in terms of churches. 
We see in Zechariah 11 the analogy shown there of churches. We've always used Zechariah 11. Remember about the three ministers that are cut off in one month? Probably ministries, maybe individuals, but it probably is ministries, I think, because at the very beginning of that chapter, <laughs> it talks of three large trees that are cut down. It mentions the pine, the oak, and the fir, or something like that. Three large ones, in other words. Not little bitty trees, but big trees. And then it mentions three ministers, or ministries, that were brought down. Three large ones. So the typology there of trees representing churches, I think, is fairly clear. So seven trees in the wilderness represent seven churches. Seven women, we know women, represent churches taking hold of one man. And certainly the seven candlesticks are representatives of churches because that's explained in Revelation 1, 2, and 3. And the two witnesses feed all seven churches at the end. So they have to all exist for all seven to be fed, okay? I just wonder, since we're talking about the first fruits here, and that they will be permeating, if maybe these seven lambs without blemish might represent the seven churches. Because that remnant, that faithful remnant, that survives at the end and builds the latter temple, as per Haggai and Zechariah 1 through 6, will be made virgins. Paul said he could present the corrupt, immoral church at Corinth as virgins before God. Then these people who are a remnant of these seven churches can also be made spiritual virgins as well. So, seven innocent lambs without blemish could represent the seven churches. Uh, one young bullock, I don't know what to do with that one quite, unless that bullock possibly could represent Christ at this point. Now, he's all generally as a lamb. But one young bullock, I'm, I don't know, I'm not sure what to do with that, and two rams. If you go to Numbers 28, it puts it a little differently. I think it says one ram and maybe two bullets, I forget now. It's, but it wasn't exactly the same as this in Numbers. And two rams. So you have seven lambs, maybe representing the seven churches. You have two rams, maybe at this point they could represent uh, the two witnesses who are to lead and guide that latter temple, help build it along with the remnant, 10% remnant of the church, that will be stirred to action by God and come to build the temple. Uh, they shall be for a burnt offering to the Lord with their meat offering and their drink offerings, even an offering made by fire of sweet savor to the eternal. So this is the feast of the first fruits. Therefore, maybe the sacrifices that are delineated here would represent different aspects of the first fruits, and therefore would add detail to Pentecost in this summary of the holy days that is not given to the others. I could see why that might be included under these circumstances, if these meanings could be or could fit. Then you shall sacrifice one kid of the goats for a sin offering. You always had a sin offering on all the holy days. And I think that that could show that, yes, even among the first fruits prior to the first resurrection, there is still sin, 
And we need to be working at that. We keep the Passover and Days of Unleavened Bread every day, and we're admonished to bring every thought into the captivity of Christ. We're admonished to walk in his footsteps, to walk where he walked, to live as he lived. And we fall short of that. So that part of it fits better here than it does with the two loaves of leaven, acknowledging that there is still sin among us until that resurrection. Then you shall sacrifice one kid of the goats for a sin offering and two lambs of the first year for a sacrifice of peace offerings. Now, maybe the rams in power represent the witnesses when they have power to rebuild the church, when they have power to preach against the world as a witness against at the end. Maybe they represent two humble lambs who are sacrificed at the end that help usher in the peace of God at the beginning of the millennium. Don't know. But now let's go and see more clearly that Pentecost represents the work that must be done. Because what I'm just saying here as speculation uh, is partially tied to understanding that. So that part we need to get, and then what I've just said might make more sense to you. I'm not sure that it makes total sense to me, but that's why it's speculation. I can't go and prove that. But let's look at these other things and see then how it might fit. I'll go to Acts 2 to begin with. Acts 2. Now, who was here? You have possibly 120 people are close to that number. It says plus or minus. Uh, who were gathered? Christ told the disciples to tarry at Jerusalem until Pentecost, to wait 50 days. So that time had come in Acts 2. When the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. I don't know what fully come means other than uh, it was into the morning. It wasn't the evening before when the day started, uh, but it was the next morning because a little later Peter said it was only the third hour of the day, which would mean 9 o'clock. So they may have started the meeting at 8, 8.30, perhaps 9. <laughs> but anyway, there was one accord in one place, and... I kind of imagine they wondered what they were doing there. They didn't understand a great deal, remember? Christ was constantly trying to get them to understand spiritual things. They were unconverted. They did not have the Holy Spirit. And they didn't grasp spiritual things. He was constantly on them about that and telling them, you just don't get it. So I imagine they scratched their heads and wondered, why are we here? Why are we waiting till Pentecost? Now, they had read these things back in Leviticus and Numbers about Pentecost, but did they understand the spiritual symbolism of Pentecost? I thoroughly doubt it. Just as any human being out in the world could pick up the Bible and they could go back to Leviticus 23 and read about all these strange-sounding things and sacrifices and all that, and they would not have a clue 
that it had anything to do with the mystery of the ages and the plan of God, the return of Christ, the millennium, and all these things that we understand. They wouldn't see that, would they? If you don't believe that, get some commentaries out and see what they say about it. They don't have a clue what this symbolism might mean. So these people had probably been talking among themselves for these 50 days, what's this all about? What does it have to do with Pentecost? Why did he tell us to wait here? Well, I guess we'll wait. So they all came. They were all together. They had a common reason for being there. That is, they had been told to be there by the Christ. So they were there. Suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them cloven tongues like fire, and it sat upon each. They're all filled with the Holy Spirit. And then you had some miracles that occurred. The miracle of tongues, that is, speaking in languages that were not your own, and hearing in languages that were your own, was a miracle. But I submit that was not the biggest miracle here. That was something to draw people from all over Jerusalem to come see this incredible thing and to experience and hear it. But what was more important was this was the beginning of the work of the New Testament first fruits. And the miracles that occurred that day and thereafter for a short period of time were absolutely dramatic. Thousands converted from Peter's sermon. Thousands, I think, converted the next day. Even the shadow of Peter passing over people healed them. Didn't even have to be anointed. Didn't even have to pray. He would walk by and his shadow would cause them to be healed just like that. Dramatic miracles to begin a work. That's what this was all about. The Holy Spirit came so that they might have power and understanding to build a church. Right? What they were there for. They weren't there for personal salvation. They were there to do a work. So Pentecost here is associated with the beginning of a mighty work by the power of God through the Holy Spirit. Now, some of those people in the Old Testament did a work, and they did have God's Spirit with them, whether begotten or not is perhaps subject to some argument. But remember what we read yesterday that David said in Psalm 20, 51, Take not your Holy Spirit from me, indicating that he was quite aware of God's Spirit and that it was with him, if not in him. Maybe God, retroactively, because He is God, caused some of those people to be, got, to be begotten at that time. I do not know. But, in a sense, the argument is moot. It doesn't really matter to us. It is clear that David and Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and a lot of those people in Hebrews 11 will be in the kingdom of God. So whether they were officially begotten or not really matters not. They will be in the kingdom of God. That's the goal, you see, of being begotten 
growing and being born into the kingdom. So they'll reach the goal, no matter what the technicality, put it that way. Those people did a certain amount of work. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, all the prophets did a work for God. And they are counted among the first fruits as well. They did not just have a personal walk with the Lord. They were called to do something. As prophets, they were called upon to write things down that God wanted written to us upon whom the ends of the world would come. They were also there as a witness against their own peoples who were in sin at that time. So they had a work to do, and they are counted in the first fruits. I think what we will find, if we were to examine everyone that's listed as a first fruit in the past, they had a job to do, a work to accomplish. That's important for us to grasp. We are not here for ourselves. We are not here to save ourselves. We are here to accomplish something God wants done. He wouldn't have called us in this end time if he didn't have a job for us. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And for every first fruit listed in Hebrews 11, or any others, the early New Testament church on, they all had a job to do. They weren't called just for personal salvation. You can believe your old Protestant, he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own, all you want. It has nothing to do with anything but personal salvation, just you and me, Lord, what it has to do with. But God is not that narrow, and we're not here just to be saved. Now, if we do the work God has given us to do, we will be saved as a result. If we don't do the work God has given us to do, we probably will not be in the kingdom of God. I think we could fairly well guarantee that. So the emphasis, right after the cloven tongues of fire and the noise and the rushing wind and the speaking in tongues, which ended shortly thereafter, something was launched. People began to preach the gospel. They traveled all over, all over Israel and then all over the Gentile lands to create the New Testament church. Now, with that in mind, let's go back to the book of Joel, chapter 2. Joel is written about the end of the age. It is written about the time just before Christ returns to the earth, the day of the Lord, and the blackness and the darkness and the clouds and the earth being shaken and all those things that will happen. So it is definitely an end-time book. Now, there are some things back here that Peter had read. He was familiar with the book of Joel. So when he saw those things happening to him, to those disciples, and to the people around, he said, well, this must be the things that were spoken of in the book of Joel. It must be the end of the age. Those people thought, Peter, Paul, James, John, all of them, that Christ was going to come back in their lifetime. That's clear from internal evidence throughout the New Testament. That they had a great and high expectation it would occur before they died. 
Little did they know that was being withheld from them to give them urgency, and so that when the Bible was written, it would be written in a present tense of great expectation so that anyone who picked it up and read it thereafter would have a sense of urgency to redeem the time, for instance, as Thessalonians says. What Peter experienced and saw may have been a minor fulfillment of Acts, but it was certainly not the major and final fulfillment of Acts. Some of the things written in Joel did happen in Acts 2, because it was the beginning of a starting of a temple, of a church. And it had to be done with power. That power had to come through the Spirit of God. Those men, all of them, all those disciples, were sitting there, but had no power. Look at the church today. How much power do you see? We are sort of sitting around waiting for something to happen like those disciples were during those 50 days. Our period of sitting and wondering has been longer, and they even have some time yet to wait. I don't know. But it's the same scenario. We have a truth, some truth. We have been begotten by God's Spirit, by baptism and the laying on of hands, so we have it indwelling in us. We're begotten, but it's like we're past term in a way. We've come to the birth and nothing's happened, as it says in some of the scriptures. So we're saying, when? It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And we have need of patience until it is God's time. All right, let's see here in Joel. talks about bad times during the church or in the church, chapter 2, verse 15, for instance. Blow the trumpet in Zion, sanctify a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people. Uh, the ministers will plead that God will spare His people, middle of verse 17, and not give His people to a reproach, that the heathen would rule over them, and so on. Because we are in a heathen world, and the church is quickly going back into heathenism, and those who are still fighting it are having trouble coming out of heathenism. We're having a difficult time separating the clean from the unclean, as Haggai tells us to do. So it is a time of great trouble. Then he talks about how he will return blessings, verses oh, 22 down through 25 and so on, and how we'll eat in plenty, verse 26. And you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and none else, and my people shall never be ashamed. Now, this is something that happens then before the day of the Lord. A return of blessings. Because it says, after this, verse 28, it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions, and also upon the servants and upon the handmaids. In those days will I pour out my Spirit, and I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be darkened, 
the moon and the blood before the great and the terrible day of the Lord come. So this is not millennial, but it is a return. Look, look at the blessings here. Verse 21. Fear not, O land. Be glad and rejoice, for the Lord will do great things. Be not afraid, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness do spring. For the tree bears her fruit. The fig tree and the vine do yield their strength. Be glad then, you children of Zion, and rejoice in the eternal your God, for he has given you the former rain moderately, and he will cause to come down for you the rain, the former rain, and the latter rain in the first month. So there is to be a tremendous outpouring of blessings in the first month of some year, and prior to the day of the Lord. Okay? I'll go back, and we'll see a little more on that later. It shall come to pass, verse 32, that whosoever shall call on the name of the Eternal shall be delivered, for in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said, and in the remnant whom the Eternal shall call. So this is a remnant of people at the last time before the day of the Lord, and through them people will be delivered. People will be protected. People will be blessed. <coughs> so, Joel is talking about a work that must be done at the end of the age by people who are the first fruits. Peter, James, and John did not fulfill that. All did not. It was a partial thing. It has to be done just prior to the day of the Lord, which he thought was coming at that time, and it didn't. Did all these things that are written here in Joel 2 happen that time at Acts 2? Did they happen prior to that? Did the wilderness bloom as a rose, Isaiah 35? Did all the trees suddenly begin producing out in the desert there? Did millennial-like conditions or Garden of Eden conditions occur suddenly in Acts 2? No, they did not. In fact, there was a dearth, a drought, starvation and famine in Jerusalem shortly hereafter, a few years later. The earth did not become bountiful around Jerusalem at that time. Not that time and not since. It hasn't occurred. But this has to happen before the day of the Lord. So here's something that Joel said would happen that did not happen. Peter saw a small, dramatic thing occur which reminded him of this, but it wasn't this. This hasn't happened. If it had, we would have in history an accounting of how the land certainly be, suddenly became fruitful and all the thorns and the stickers and bugs went away. Hasn't happened. Still has to, before the day of the Lord. All right, in summary then of that, these people were called upon to do a work. They received power of the Holy Spirit to do the work that they were given to do. But it was more limited than that which we read about in the rest of the minor prophets and in Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. There is an end-time work that is even bigger that has to be done. Who is it going to be done by? 
first fruits. There's no one else to do it. The remaining first fruits have a work to do. Now that work, if successful, will finish in the first resurrection. But it has to be done, has to be accomplished. Let's go back to Isaiah. Let's see, I think I'll pick it up in verse or chapter 51. It's a good place. I read this just the other day, or a couple of weeks ago, but I want to go back to it now. Now, if you'll recall from our study of Isaiah recently, about chapter 40, it says, Comfort you, comfort you, my people. It talks about a voice crying in the wilderness talks about seven churches being planted in the wilderness in chapter 41. It goes on through and shows incredible blessings being returned and how God has to have a way prepared for our God, a highway for our God. Remember that. And a lot of things would occur. Chapter 35 talks about the desert blooming as a rose. And there's much in the context, as we saw during that series, to show that it is pre-millennial. It will also be during the millennium, but there is a microcosm of that that occurs before the millennium. We heard a sermon this morning about being a light and having light and being a light to the world. And God is going to have to have and is preordained that there will be a group of people who will be full of light and who will be a light to the world and the whole world will be arrayed against them. The whole world will worship the beast, except a very few, a small remnant of God's people, who will be drawn together as a remnant to build his temple. All right, chapter 51. Hearken to me, you that follow after righteousness. That would have to be the first fruits. That would have to include us. Those people on earth who are truly seeking righteousness. You that seek the eternal, look to the rock whence you are hewn, and the hole of the pit whence you are digged. Look to Abraham your father and to Sarah that bore you. What's he telling us to do here? Look back to our fathers. What does Elijah at the end of the age have to do? Turn us to our father in heaven, and turn us back to our fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and do as they did. And ultimately to turn the hearts of the physical fathers and sons and children to each other. Three levels or stages of turning of hearts that has to be done, listed from the most important down to the least important. All important, of course, but our relationship with our Father in heaven is first, and not repeating the mistakes of some of our fathers is second, as Zechariah 1 points out, lest we suffer the same thing our fathers suffered. But our righteous fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and David, and so on, we are to look to and to do the same things we did, that they did. That's why Paul listed them in Hebrews 11 as the ones who were faithful, because he recognized we need to look to those people, those righteous men and women who obeyed God. And therefore, we are to do likewise. So if they had a work to do, we have a work to do. So look to Abraham and Sarah, for I called him alone and blessed him and increased him. He's saying, 
What's he saying? He's saying the same thing can happen to you that happened to Abraham. That's what he's saying. Why look to Abraham if what happened to him can't be you? It can. He's a first fruit. We're first fruits. His salvation is guaranteed. Ours is still on the line. For I called him alone and blessed him and increased him. Now, Isaiah is a book written to the end-time church about the end-time first fruits. And he's telling us to look to Abraham who got blessed. How will he bless us if we do as Abraham did? Verse 3, for the eternal shall comfort Zion. We know that the church is Zion, Hebrews 12, 22 through 23, that the church is Jerusalem, and we've come to understand that there is another Jerusalem other than just the Jerusalem in Palestine. We'll get to that in a moment. For the eternal shall comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places. The church has been destroyed and wasted today. And he will make her wilderness like Eden and her desert like the garden of the Lord. Millennial conditions are going to return before the day of the Lord. During the time of the rebuilding of the latter temple, the remnant of God's flock, his 10% that he is going to draw out, and the two witnesses who are typified by Zerubbabel and Joshua in Haggai and Zechariah. All right, we've, we've been there before, but let's go back to Zechariah again. Now, this is about the church. We'll see that clearly. And in verse 12 of chapter 1, it says, The angel of the eternal answered and said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you not have mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah, against which you have had indignation these threescore and ten years? So the 70 years of Jeremiah is brought out here, the same 70 years that are listed in Daniel, truly an end-time book, is brought up again here in Zechariah, having to do with the end-time church, not just the captivity in Babylon. We'll see from the context that this is talking about the two witnesses at the end building the latter temple or putting a remnant of the church back together to form an end-time temple. So the angel to commune with me said to me, Cry you, saying, Thus says the eternal of hosts, I am jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with a great jealousy. He's jealous of the end-time church. This is an end-time prophecy. It's not talking about physical, the little hill of Zion, and that walled city of Jerusalem in Palestine. Not talking about that. He's talking about the church today. I am very sore displeased with the breath, with the heathen that are at ease, for I was but a little displeased, and they helped forward the affliction. Under Herbert Armstrong, God was somewhat displeased, and we were not what we ought to have been. But God was not so angry that he was ready to just tear it apart. But when the heathen came in, spelled T-K-A-C-H and others, God became very angry and blew it all apart. <coughs> they helped forward that affliction. Therefore, thus says the eternal, I am returned to Jerusalem with mercies. My house shall be built in it. So God is going to return to the church in mercy. He's turned his face from us, as we've seen in many scriptures. It will be turned back to us in mercy and in blessing. 
Notice chapter 2. I lifted up my eyes again and looked, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then said I, Where do you go? And he said to me, To measure Jerusalem, to see what is the breadth thereof and what is the length thereof. Now, do you need somebody to go over to measure physical Jerusalem? They know how big it is. All you get is, get is a travel brochure. It'll tell you all about it. Go to the encyclopedia. Now, this is measuring the church to see what's left. And behold, the angel that talked with me went forth, and another angel went out to meet him, and said to him, Run, speak to this young man, saying, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns, plural, without walls, for the multitude of men and cattle therein. Now, Jerusalem, as it stands today in the Middle East, is a walled city, and it does not have cattle in it except pieces of meat that are brought in to sell at the markets. It is not agricultural in that sense at all. This is talking about something different that will be built somewhere else as towns, plural, small villages, without walls. That one is a walled city. Remains that way, always has been. Walls been knocked down at times, built back up. There is a scripture later in Zechariah that talks about Jerusalem being built or restored in her own place. What that infers is that Jerusalem has been moved for a time, but it will be reestablished on the original site because that is the center of God's attention and where He will come when He returns. But meantime... Most of Jerusalem is in America today. Most of the church was called right here. And we are told that the place of safety will be in our own land. When the Assyrian comes into our land, he's talking about the church. I'm not going into all that today. I simply do not have time. We've been there before. Most of you understand that. New listeners won't, but you'll get up to speed as time goes on. So this is to be towns without walls for the multitude of men and cattle. It is to be an agricultural operation. It says down in chapter... Uh, where is it? Oh, the end of chapter 3, verse 10. In that day, says the Eternal of hosts, shall you call every man his neighbor under the vine and under the fig tree. This is premillennial. This is taught, this is the chapter about Joshua being cleansed and how he will be the high priest if he is diligently obedient and so on. And it's interesting that the seven eyes, verse nine, on the stone put before Joshua are the eyes of the eternal. You go to Revelation one and two, it shows that it's talking about the seven churches again. So what does he tell us to do under these circumstances? We're in the context of the two olive trees, chapter 3 and 4 uh, of Revelation 11. Those are the two olive trees. So it's speaking of the two witnesses here. Their job <coughs> is delineated in chapter 4. I waked out as out of sleep. He said to me, what do you see? And I said, I have looked and behold a candlestick all of gold with a bowl upon the top of it. And his seven lamps thereon, and seven pipes to the seven lamps which are on the top thereof, 
and two olive trees by it, one on the right side of the bowl and the other on the left side of the bowl. Then it talks about Zerubbabel building not by his own might or power, but by my spirit, says the eternal of hosts, verse 6. Interesting. There is a work here to be done by these two men, and they will receive power from God's spirit to get it done. The church today, even in Herbert Armstrong's time, did not have great power. It had a little power, a little strength, but not great power. Not like Acts 2, and certainly not like Joel 2. That kind of power will return. And it says, Zerubbabel laid the foundation of the temple, and that his hands would finish it. I think there's evidence in Scripture that a man started something and backed off and didn't finish it, but we'll have to come back and do it. And it talks about not despising the small things. Verse 11, Then answered I and said to him, What are these two olive trees upon the right side of the candlestick and upon the left side thereof? And I answered again and said to him, What be these two olive branches which through the two golden pipes emptied the golden oil out of themselves to the seven lamps? And he answered and said, Don't you know who these are? No. Then said he, These are the two anointed ones that stand by the Lord of the whole earth. The only other reference to two anointed ones in the whole Bible is Revelation 11, speaking of the two witnesses. So their job is laid out here to build Jerusalem as towns without walls with much men and cattle. God will provide the miracles that will turn it into an Eden, a garden of God. We find in Isaiah 4 that God will be a protection we find in, uh, where is it? It's right here in this context, that God will be a canopy from the heat and a wall of fire around it. So it's to be built by a remnant of the church and these two men. The whole book of Haggai has to do with that, how God will call a tithe, a remnant of his people, to build the latter temple. You go on to chapter 6 here, and it talks about it again being God. Now, let's tie that in with Revelation 11. I know this is things we have been over before, but I think it's good to review it here in terms of understanding this day better. Chapter 11 of Revelation. There was given me a reed like a rod, and the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, or as we read in Zechariah 2, Jerusalem, which Hebrews 12, 2 through 22 and 23 tell us is the church. Measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. So the measuring is to be done of the entire temple, just like the measuring of Jerusalem in Zechariah 2, and those that worship there. So this is a chapter introducing the work of the two witnesses, as explained in Zechariah 3, 4, and 6, but also here in the book of Revelation. And it tells them to measure the church and the altar, the ministry, and them that worship therein. That's interesting in the light of what most organizations are trying to do today. They're still trying to go to the world. Herbert Armstrong went to the world as per Matthew 28, 19 through 20 and made disciples of many nations. He did not preach the gospel of the kingdom as a witness to the world and then the end would come as per Matthew 24, 14. That was not his job. That's the job that we'll read about here in just a moment. But the first job of the end time First fruits 
led by the two witnesses, is to measure the temple, the ministry, and the members that worship there. But the court which is without the temple, leave out and measure it not. Their first job is to the church, and the church alone has nothing to do with preaching to the world at all. For it is given to the Gentiles, and the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty-two months. That is the job that is outlined in Zechariah 1 through 4 and 6. It's the job that is outlined in Haggai. Build the temple. God will stir the people to come. It's not an evangelical effort. God says, I will stir them to come. And he tells us, in many places, Zephaniah 2, to gather ourselves before the crash of finances comes into a solitary place. Micah 4 says, go out of the city, stay in Babylon, but go out of the city, dwell in the field, and there you will be delivered. He tells us to go out to the desert and the wilderness, and that he will make the desert and the wilderness bloom as a rose and become as the garden of God as Eden. God is going to perform incredible miracles here at the end that will set his true remnant apart from A, the rest of the church, and B, the rest of the world. And it will be a light to the world. It will be an example that the witnesses can use to witness against the world. It will have a wall of fire around it so that it cannot be destroyed until God decrees that. Because if you're going to witness against the world, you've got to have some kind of contrast to show them, don't you? So this is what's right as opposed to what's wrong with what you're doing. Besides that, the world is going to be trying to produce a millennium on earth with millennial conditions of peace and prosperity, as outlined in Scripture, but it will be a falsely hollow counterfeit. And they will not be able to produce millennial-like conditions on this earth. They simply cannot make the desert bloom as a rose. They cannot make springs and fountains in the desert. They cannot perform those miracles. So it is a hollow counterfeit. But they'll make most people believe it. Nearly all, so that even the very elect would be deceived, if possible. But in the middle of them trying to do that, God is going to truly set up a small millennium, millennial garden inhabited by the remaining first fruits. We have a job to do to build a temple, and in that place, God says, He will give peace. Haggai 2.9, I think it is. And it will be millennial. Every man will have his own vine and fig tree. There will be much men and cattle there. It will be small. It will be 10% of what was the church. That is very clear in Isaiah 1.9 uh, and Haggai and many other places. Just 10%. So, the first job of the end-time 
first fruits is to rebuild the temple, to build the latter temple. The former has been torn down right in front of our very eyes, and it is to be rebuilt with a remnant of what remains. The second job, then, is to submit to God, to obey Him, to be poor in spirit, to be humble and contrite and seek righteousness. And if we do those things, He is going to put us in a garden of God and let us be lights to the rest of the world. And then, verse 3 of chapter 11 of Revelations, or Revelation, I will give power to my two witnesses and they shall prophesy a thousand a hundred and threescore days clothed in sackcloth. So, three and a half years preaching against the world with the rest of the first fruits in an Eden provided by God. So that it is an end time work of us all, not just of two. Now, he has revealed this knowledge to a few people and to a few... He is even told, get out of the city, go dwell in the field, gather yourselves before the decree of destruction begin, and if you were humble and righteous, maybe you shall be hid. So prior to the work of the two witnesses really even starting through the gathering of people to them once they come together, God has told some people to go out as a preparation crew. I think that is the job he has given us. The reason I think that is because no one else seems to understand it. So if God opened our understanding to those scriptures, he expects us to be the ones that act on it. If we didn't understand it, we couldn't act on it. If we do understand it, we better act on it. Okay? So this day represents the work of the first fruits as told in Joel, as fulfilled in part by the beginning of the New Testament church, and as will be fulfilled in very dramatic, powerful fashion of the very end-time latter temple. That's what this is all about. We are not here to save ourselves. We are here to do a work. We are here to prepare a place as villages for people to come to. And at some point, God will add the power. We already have the begettle of His Holy Spirit. But we sit here just like those early disciples without power. Without perhaps even full understanding, but through all these scriptures that we have studied in the last ten years. We have a pretty good understanding of what is to come. And we have a good understanding of what our place in it can be. If we are to attain to the first resurrection, the other day that has to do with the first fruits, we need to be doing the work of God that He has laid out for the end time first fruits to do. It is almost like a new era starting of the church. You see, God started something through Herbert Armstrong. Herbert Armstrong fulfilled the job that God had 
given him to do, he called many. Out of that many who were called, many are now, or few, are now being chosen to go on and build a latter temple. And the groundwork for that latter temple has to be done now. We're not here necessarily to lay the foundation. We're here to prepare the ground, let's say, to prepare a place for them to come. This is not the place of safety. It is near the place of safety, but this is prior to that, that this will occur. And this Jerusalem, towns without walls, that will be built in the next months and years, will be destroyed because it is what Satan will come against. It is the Jerusalem that he will seek to destroy. He could care less about physical Jerusalem that's full of Muslims, Jews, and Christians, none of whom are first fruits. It has no meaning spiritually. God calls it Sodom and Egypt in the book of Revelation. And not only that, it is going to still be there at the time the two witnesses die. And the earthquake that occurs at that time is going to kill 7,000 people. But the abomination of desolation that occurs in Matthew 24 and is spoken of in the book of Daniel is to destroy Jerusalem. It's a different Jerusalem. It's the church Jerusalem. It is the Zion and Jerusalem removed from the Middle East temporarily where God has his people. And then, later on, Jerusalem will be reestablished in her own place, implying that it was moved for a time. This day is very important. What has occurred on it in times past was the beginning of a work. And we see, briefly at least today, that there is another important work, even more important in some respects, or more dramatic, not more important, more dramatic, that has to be done here at the end. And it has to be done by the first fruits. We have an incredible task ahead of us. We have an important calling ahead of us as first fruits. We need to read, study, and understand God's Word and truly comprehend what our job is. If we do our job right, we will be listed among the faithful, and we will be resurrected at the other day set aside for the first fruits, the Feast of Trumpets. So this day is about us. But it's not about our resurrection. It's about the job that we've been given to do. To prepare the bride, ourselves, the church, to build a temple, and to be ready to witness against the world when God sets the leadership and gives the power to do it. And to be an example in the Garden of Eden to the rest of the world of how things can be if they would only obey God.